Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org and live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. In the first half, pediatric endocrinologist Paul Cruz returns to the Dr. Dr. Microphone to tell us about transgender individuals in sports competitions. For our second half, plastic surgeon Al Oliva appears to tell us about the surgical procedures that individuals are undergoing to try to appear like the opposite sex. I just couldn't resist the unique opportunity to interview both of them at the 24th International Congress of the Federation of Catholic Medical Associations, which was held literally across the street from uh, St. Peter's Square. So, Andrew, how does this, well, these interviews, not this interview, expand the prior interviews we've done regarding gender dysphoria? Yeah, I, I think it was very enlightening. I wish I were there, actually. Uh, haven't been to Rome in many years, so that would have been cool. But uh, I really enjoyed listening to the interviews, mainly because Paul talks in depth about how it's not just testosterone. I think everything yeah. you read online, you always hear the Olympic Committee and stuff, testosterone-centric. There's a lot more to it than that. So that was news to me. And then as far as Al with the surgical stuff, I mean, you know, it's it's sad. It's crazy. Uh, to me, how many people do they have to practice on doing oh, these yes. crazy I joke about that sometimes, uh, like, oh, I'm glad I, I wasn't the first one, you know, to get the GOMCO practice on them for circumcision or something like that. Uh, but this is still something that is so odd. It's unnatural and imperfect. And with complication rates as high as 70%, ureteral stenosis, he mentioned. Yeah, you're going to hear about that. Urethral. Urethral. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. When you have numbers like that, this is something that's not a good surgery still, just from a surgical standard. So this is ongoing, really, experimentation is what I would call it in, in surgical, I don't know. Mutilation. Mutilation. <laughs> yeah, this is just, it's like a horror film. Yeah, it's taking a body and making it what it isn't, um, which, of course, I, I think that idea can only come from the depths of hell because for hundreds of years, human beings have apparently not thought of it. Well, it's it's the opposite of restorative anything. There's nothing that's being restored. There's something that's trying to be taken down and built up differently in a way that we think is better than it was originally built. And it turns out we're terrible at it, <laughs> just from an objective standpoint. Yeah, no wonder, because it's not the way we were meant to function. And you use the word restorative. The meeting I was at, the uh, theme was, is medicine transformative or restorative? Ah. And, and that's what that's why these were two of the speakers and they did an awesome job there. Um, and you're going to hear another interview in another episode uh, about a different aspect of transformative or restorative. And sometimes transformative is good when there's something lacking. Uh, right. It may seem. And so we'll get more into that with this. These sets of interviews, though, that's probably not the case. Well, that's always the question. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody sits down and asks it or if they think about it before they start a career in medicine. But what's the perfect of medicine? The uh, purpose, I'm sorry, of medicine. Is it really to improve or change or alter or is it to, I don't know, alleviate suffering, which is kind of what I thought it was for. You yeah, know? Or, or healing or making people whole, but not making them a cyborg or a. Oh, what's the word? It's almost a parody of what a human being is. Well, and, you know, you hear about these grotesque things that the Nazis would do to people, right? Jewish people and other yes. other folks that they were doing these experiments on. And, and that was one of the things that came to my mind listening to especially, especially to the surgical techniques is that you, you can't even if somebody says they have informed consent, you can't get informed consent regarding these surgical things. You, people don't have any touch tone as to what that actually looks like, not only because it's so uncommon, but it's also so experimental. A 70% complication rate. Um, what about these these folks who are attempting this even before whatever the age of consent? You pick an age and I'd argue right. with you. There's not a time when you can give informed consent for this. And so that, that would be my biggest beef as well, is that this is really just a, a sick experimentation on people who are who are vulnerable. They're suffering, really. Oh, and these people are suffering. And what all people are looking for is to be healed of suffering and they're seeking love. And, you know, the question is, 
are these transgender athletes? That's half of the interview. And these, you know, women trying to look like men and vice versa. Are they really finding love through this? I mean, I think that's their goal. I mean, yeah, they want to be happy, but we're typically happy when we uh, fulfill our being and our being yearns to be united with the beloved. And there is an appropriate beloved for a human being. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I think it, it makes me feel a little bit like, you know, we're, we're talking about the snake oil salesman that yes. it's kind of depicted in the 1800s, you know, going around in one of these carts. Uh, just take this little potion number nine and uh, this is going to fix your problems. Uh, except this is not just something that you, you swallow, you ingest and it's all over. This is a, a lifetime of permanently altered physical function, appearance. Right. Um, so really, I think folks are vulnerable. Folks are being sold up a river. We really should do a lot, whatever we can to stop this. Yeah, you, you can't go backwards. That's why sometimes I have patients, they have a hole on their nose after removing cancer and they're not sure if they want me to do the reconstructive surgery to put it together. And I always tell them, look, if you're unsure, don't do anything. And if you don't like the way it looks, then you can have something done. But if you have something done and the next day wish you had, you can't go backwards. Yeah, you can't go back. And that's uh, it's a tough thing, but I'm glad we got these guys enlightening us. I mean, this is something I don't see every day in family medicine, especially the surgical stuff. And so it was informative for me, and I hope our listeners enjoy it Have too. Have you ever had a patient in your training request something like this? There's a lot of a lot of folks that I've got to care for that that talk about and start and toy around with the idea of transitioning as a blanket term. But uh, even apart from medical science and the standard of care, Individually, that means different things to these people. And I think a lot of folks like the idea of doing some of that without going whole hog, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so I've I've never, it's still new enough, I've never had the opportunity to care for a person who's gone all the way. But uh, I've, I've definitely heard from these folks and it's it's only a cursory literature search and Google search to, to see folks who really regret doing this. And that's why so many of the places that pioneered it, a lot of the countries in, in Europe, Northern Europe, especially, they've stopped doing it. And Except it, in the, uh, as part of a study. That's right. Yeah. So at least they're calling it experimental, but it's not the standard of care anymore. And even a lot of folks who are pro-transitioning, pro-gender affirming care, they're coming out and saying, we're really, we shouldn't be rushing into this. And a lot of people do regret it. Yes, which is good to know. Which brings us to the medical trivia question of the day. The category, of course, is the urethra. You didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> so and the urethra being that which carries the urine from the bladder to uh, a receptacle outside your body. So question, Dr. Oliva is going to talk about the urethra. In women, the average length of the urethra is about four centimeters, just over an inch and a half long. What is the average length of the urethra in men? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show to find out, but we'll be back with the two interviews from Rome shortly after this break on Dr. Doctor. We're recording in Rome at a conference of the International Association of Catholic Medical Associations called uh, Medicine. Is it reparative or is it transformative? And one of the speakers here is a previous guest on Dr. Doctor. It's Dr. Paul Cruz from the Washington University in St. Louis, where he takes care of patients and does research in pediatric endocrinology. Paul, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. It's my pleasure to be here. So a different angle on the transgender topic today, and that is sports competition. I think this is going to fascinate our, our listeners. And I think we should do an overarching thing. You know, the Catholic Church has said many good things about sports over the years. Why would they do that? Um, well, certainly uh, there are many benefits uh, in athletic competition that are well recognized, uh, building self-esteem, uh, the effort that's required to excel in an athletic competition that can lead uh, to very important lessons uh, for our children and uh, uh, that will carry them out throughout life. So certainly that we know that there's uh, incredible benefits uh, with uh, uh, being allowing or allowing individuals to uh, to compete in athletic competition, and something called Title IX was passed years ago in the U.S. What does that do? 
Um, well, it, it wasn't specifically directed to sports, but that's how it's uh, best known ah. uh, currently. Uh, it had to do with uh, more more generally as far as uh, uh, making sure that that both sexes uh, had equal access uh, to education uh, and and in its application to athletic competition. Prior to, to, to Title IX, uh, very few uh, females were competing in athletic competition. In college uh, or high school. Even in high school okay. or college. And this uh, really leveled the playing field and allowed the entry of females into uh, athletics and uh, really just exponentially increased uh, the participation of females in, in that area. Very good. Uh, do you do any sports or did you? I, I did. I actually uh, wrestled all the way through college. Oh, so, one of those. Yeah. yeah. There was this family. They had like seven boys, good Catholic family. They were all a lot shorter than me. But the minute you walk in the house, you were on the floor. I mean, they were wrestling you and I there was just didn't have a chance. Uh, yeah, I really. Um, and then one day the wrestling coach said, McGovern, come come try to, to make it through a, a practice. I made it through, but barely. You guys worked hard. It, it was it, true to the uh, the benefits as far as lifelong lessons that were learned, as far as uh, the, uh -huh. the necessity to sacrifice, uh, to be able to dedicate yourself yes. in practice, uh, and to overcome adversity. Uh, you know that when uh, you don't win every match, and no. uh, you have to learn how to deal with that. Uh, so I, I benefited in the, in many of the ways that I, I described earlier. Excellent. So. Uh, is there a difference biologically between men and women, boys and girls? Um, most certainly there is a, a difference. Uh, and uh, the differences in the bodies are, are very apparent to anyone that, that takes a moment to look at that. Uh, and this is going to be very important when we discuss the topic of, of sexual difference uh, in athletic competition. Sure. So what are the differences? Uh, you know, we'll take, you know, college age, for instance, because college age and International Olympics, that, that's where this question has really come to the fore. I suppose it is in high schools also. But is there a competitive advantage of one sex over the other? Um, we see this throughout life, but certainly most uh, strikingly uh, after uh, individuals have gone through puberty. Uh, and the differences relate to uh, um, differences in bony structure, in uh, respiratory capacity, in cardiovascular function, uh, in muscle strength, muscle mass, uh, you know, uh, all of these uh, components that are essential uh, to competing uh, in various athletic competitions. And uh, do these all favor male or are there some things that favor females? Uh, certainly females. Uh, when we look at muscle fiber type, mm -hmm. um, we talk about fast twitch versus slow twitch uh, muscles. Uh, there are some female components that where the muscle type actually favors uh, more uh, distance running. However, that is together with the other elements that are necessary in, in the various competitions. So counterbalancing that, um, things like uh, hematocrit or red blood cell count uh, that gives you oxygen carrying capacity, your uh, size of the heart that, that how, how um, effectively that it, it can contract and deliver blood uh, to the tissues that need it during exercise, respiratory capacity as far as how much oxygen that you can uh, uh, breathe in with every breath um, that will make a difference. So that uh, there are components of this, but uh, uh, taken as a whole, there's the competitive advantages for the male. So what are some of the ones for female? Like I've heard ultra distance running like past marathon. At what distance do women do better than men? Um, well, as far as if you look at across the board, um, and this is the data that's actually used, is if you look at uh, Olympic records yes. uh, in various sports and the differences between males and females, I think across the board, um, the percentage differences will vary between the competition that you're talking about related to some of those uh, intrinsic differences uh, sure. in what is the component uh, right. of that, um, the difference between males and females that are necessary for that. And so the differences in, in running competition is smaller, um, about, 10, about 10%. Uh, and the difference in, so if we look at, at the competitive advantage for a sprinting event versus distance, it's smaller, um, uh, less than 10%. As opposed to weightlifting, where it's a fifty percent difference uh, between the two different uh, uh, sexes, and then I'm thinking uh, certain types of gymnastics favor women more, don't they? Um, and that has a lot to do uh, with uh, body size, yes. weight, uh, and together with with some of the uh, coordination elements that are are not as um, 
directly related to to um, musculature, uh, more you know balance, for example, and and uh, uh, being able to 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 compete in. Those so areas. we're probably not seeing many um, biological men competing as women in gymnastics. I would guess. I, I, I have not seen it uh, uh, myself. No. Very good. So why? Is there a difference in female and male body? It's all testosterone, right? Well, it's not to discount uh, that testosterone or sex steroids in general uh, are a major contributor to this uh, uh, difference in athletic performance. But there's certainly many uh, other components that are independent of, of the sex steroid hormones. And so, so that's where you know, it's very important to recognize uh, the hormone-independent effects, uh, which actually relates to genetic differences between males and females. So is it because men don't have two X chromosomes or is it the Y chromosome or what makes the, the difference then genetically? Uh, what we do know about the genetic contribution, uh, again, if we look at, at athletic performance differences in prepubertal uh, children prior to the time of going through puberty, uh, we um, know that there are, are differences in what we call epigenetics, so that it's it's beyond just the X and Y chromosome. By being male or female, uh, there are structural differences in the DNA itself uh, where the, the uh, DNA gets modified uh, to, to direct differential expression of the genes that make the proteins that carry out all the instructions for the body. So uh, those differences are present uh, very early in life. Uh, there's data that uh, there are over 6,000 genes that there's a sex differential expression, meaning that, that if you look at um, one gene versus another in a male or a female, they're different. Oh my goodness. So even though they, they might have ex the same sequence, they're activated more or less in, in in men and women and any other sex. That is correct. And, and, uh, and we very well understood these, these differences. It's, it's the same reason why uh, there's different disease susceptibility. Yes. So there's different responses to medications between males and females. Yes. Uh, it's another example uh, of the, um, the exquisite uh, difference that's present. Uh, and it's necessary to consider those differences when, when we uh, want to understand the function uh, of, of tissues, muscle. Um, males and females differ in lean body mass, for example. Um, and yes. uh, now much of that is driven by sex steroid uh, hormones, a testosterone or estrogen. Sure. Um, but beyond that, uh, there's also genetic contributors. So this epigenetic, you know, to me, it's, it's this big nebulous black box term. What is it that turns on some genes and not others? What are these epigenetic factors? Um, well, two uh, main ones that I, I will mention uh, in this conversation. Um, it's called histone acetylation and DNA methylation. So these are chemical changes that occur to the DNA uh, that uh, change the way uh, the instructions are read by the body. So when we think about DNA, uh, DNA is merely the instruction book for the body to know what it's yes. supposed to do. And there's machinery that's necessary to be able to read that information and then translate it into the signals that, that do all of the work. And because of these uh, epigenetic changes, it alters the way that the body reads those instructions. Uh, and that's why we see differences in gene expression. And this is regardless of hormones or partially due to hormones? Uh, it certainly is. Con uh, hormones will have an influence on this, uh, but we do see uh, differences that are independent. The best data that I, I can uh, share with mm -hmm. you, um, there have been experiments that have been done, uh, what we call in vitro within uh, uh, the laboratory setting yes. within a Petri dish, uh, where you take cells from a male or a female, and then you look at the genes that are expressed. And this is in a setting in which there are no hormones there okay. at all. And in those studies, those differences that I mentioned are present uh, as far as the, some genes that are expressed more and less just by virtue of the fact of, of whether it's a male or female uh, uh, cell. So let's go to, uh, it's not an experiment of nature, but it, it happened through some horrible things. So in the Bible, it talks about eunuchs. Those were males whose testicles were removed before they went through puberty. How would they have been physi physically, physiologically different than a woman? 
Um, for the same reasons that we've just talked about, um, the, the, the differences um, that most people recognize, um, having not gone through puberty, uh, they don't have the lowering of the voice, they don't uh, ever uh, have the virilizing effects of the, the testosterone so that facial hair is absent. Sure. Um, but the, the genetic differences are still there uh, between the males so and females. So would eunuchs still have a competitive advantage over females in many sports? Well, I, I'm not aware of the, the science that has looked at, at eunuchs per se, um, but I can look at, at the data um, when we compare, um, for example, uh, the differences in prepubertal children. Uh, so yes. that before they go through puberty, if you look at fitness tests, and this has been done in several different countries uh, over um, uh, many uh, different uh, time frames, uh, and um, uh, looking at individuals of different levels of fitness and consistently uh, these male-female differences are present. So, so you can't attribute it to the uh, testosterone uh, that at that point in life, these right. children have never been exposed to that. So it, it, it uh, really indicates that there are differences. Um, the differences actually do become much more significant after puberty, but the, the important point is that they're there prior to puberty. So what are some of you, you mentioned, you know, off uh, recording that bone length differences make a difference. What does that make a difference? in? Um, well, again, it, it's dependent on the athletic competition that we're talking about. But as, as an example, uh, the ability to throw a baseball um, there, this is one of the areas that there's the, one of the greatest differences, almost 50 percent. And so uh, there's a, a, a general physics. If you look at, um, you know, the, the, the motion that the arm has to go through and how that affects the velocity of the release of the baseball is going to be very different um, depending on, on bone length. Uh, stride length is very different in the legs uh, based on that. Uh, when we talk about respiratory capacity, there's lung volume, but there's also differences uh, in, in the, um, uh, the ribs, for example. Uh, and then probably most significant um, uh, when, uh, now this is more post-pubertally, when we look at, at the, uh, the shape of the hips and, and how that oh, actually sure. uh, will, will contribute to the mechanics of, of how running. one runs. So. Now, you're saying in baseball, but it seems to me that uh, women's softball pitchers, which is uh, windmill underhand, they're just about as good as men, just as unhittable. So, so this illustrates uh, perfectly, you know, that that the the basis of what we're talking about. Because if you think about the physics that one uh, needs to have, uh, and that's very likely the reason why it, uh, that sport evolved uh, and in females uh, pitching the ball in that that manner uh, is to take advantage uh, competitively in the best way uh, for the giftedness that the female has. And it's actually a lot easier on the shoulder, a lot less injuries than throwing a baseball overhand. They don't need Tommy John surgery. <laughs> so now the big question, of course, is competitive sports. So say a biological male wants to compete as a female. What, what are the current rules that the NCAA or the International Olympic Committee have come up with? Um, it's very interesting when we look at the regulatory uh, requirements, and uh, they've evolved over time. And uh, right now, uh, the focus is ba based primarily on lowering testosterone levels, and there's been debate about how low they have to be uh, uh, decreased. Uh, and how long they have to be decreased uh, to be able to uh, level the playing field. And um, there is a clear uh, drop in athletic performance when one lowers testosterone levels. But the question that one needs to ask, does it uh, get uh, to uh, a level that um, essentially is equal? Um, so do the levels have to be the same range as a normal female testosterone level? Um, well, that is the argument that that the Olympic Committee uh, and the NCAA uh, have adopted, uh, trying to with the argument that if we lower the testosterone levels of a biological male to that which would be seen in a female, um, that that would level the playing field. But uh, they're not really following the science. It doesn't level the playing field, uh, does it? In, in, in no way does it. And there's there's actually um, uh, uh, over a dozen studies that have shown consistently uh, in various measurements, uh, looking at 
the uh, net effect. And so there is a lowering of athletic performance, but there's a residual gap of athletic uh, advantage that ranges anywhere from 10 to 30% oh my. after the testosterone is lowered. And, and when they've looked at that, um, and again, some of these studies have been done between one and three or four years at, at, at most that I, I've seen, um, that um, when they look at each of the different parameters, so the ability to extract oxygen, the uh, muscle strength, um, or, um, you know, the, the, whatever the measure is that you have, um, it will vary, but, but across the board, uh, there is our residual differences that are present. So in other words, these organizations that say they're committed to, to equality among the sexes are really now discriminating against women. Um, I, I would say most certainly they are. And, and, and another way to look at this so that if you look at, um, the most elite female athletes in several sports, yes. Um, there are literally thousands of males that surpassed that Olympic record. Oh, sure. Uh, and, and that, that, um, you know, that, that even after the lowering of, of the testosterone levels, uh, you're going to see that, that competitive advantage. Where do you think this is heading? Are, are there any countries that are saying this is nonsense? We can't do this. Um, well, they're certainly in our cultural conversation right now, they're trying to balance uh, two different goals. I think that there's certainly, we're seeing this and the whole topic of athletic competition is really touching a nerve uh, with, within our country and I think in other countries as well because of two issues, uh, both uh, uh, fairness, yes. but also safety. Uh, there, you know, we haven't touched on that either, you know, that, that there, there, there are safety issues as well. Um, and balancing that with the desire to be inclusive so that there's a desire to say that, that the desire to be able to include people um, that have sex discordant gender identity and being able to compete uh, within athletic competitions according to their um, identified gender uh, takes precedent over these issues of, of safety and fairness. Uh, the discussion actually is is a good one to have so that um, many uh, athletes that excel in any sport uh, will often have a competitive advantage that they were born with. Uh, think about Michael Phelps. You know, he had oh, yes. uh, differences in, in oh. his body shape oh, that actually goodness. um, gave him an, an advantage. Um, and so there, there, there is room and, and a necessity, you know, to have that conversation, uh, and where there's disagreement is is where you draw that line, and and whether you're doing this naturally or artificially. The other area, you know, that that is being discussed, and actually prior to this this uh, current uh, movement of um, sex discord and gender identity or gender dysphoria, we saw this in the area of, of disorders of sexual development. So, uh, female, there's it, it, there's striking statistics about uh, an overrepresentation of female athletes that have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Oh, sure, so testosterone higher, effect. Higher natural levels of testosterone uh, that gives them a competitive advantage. And there's been uh, efforts to necessitate when you exceed a certain level to lower those testosterone levels. Oh. Um, and then there are some cases of uh, partial androgen insensitivity oh. uh, or uh, other, you know, adrenal hyperplasia are the other areas where um, where you can have differences in, in um, sex steroid hormone uh, levels uh, that will uh, give a competitive advantage. And so, so there's much that needs to be discussed about this, but we need to recognize um, the way it's being presented uh, in a very simplistic way of saying it's all testosterone uh, and that there is a possibility of having um, fair competition is not borne out by the science. In fact, it, it strongly, um, almost definitively um, uh, disqualifies that as a rational argument. So ideology is trumping science. Absolutely. So last question, if listeners want to follow this topic, what sources are reliable? Um, well, I, am sure the listeners are, aren't going to have access to the extensive scientific literature that's out there. Most, most of, of my colleagues, uh, in the field of medicine are not aware of the literature that's available. Ah. Um, but I think that there, there are, um, there, there's a need as we, we continue in, uh, on this conversation, uh, to be able to, um, uh, to at least uh, recognize, as we're doing uh, here in yes. this interview, uh, to be able to uh, reference that. I, I, there's really very little information that is generally accessible to the public at the moment uh, on this topic, and that's why it's wonderful that we're, we're having this opportunity. Great. Paul, thanks for being with us again on Dr. Doctor. My pleasure. And we are still in Rome at the International 
Congress of Catholic Medical Associations, where we have Dr. Al Oliva from Spokane, Washington. Al's a plastic surgeon, a subspecialty in microvascular plastic surgery. And he spoke here about surgery and surgical complications of transgender surgery. Al, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Well, thank you very much, Tom, for having me on your show. Oh, it's a pleasure. So uh, you talked about these mutilating procedures that are being done on people. I can't think of a, a another word to use to describe it. What is the, the landscape like right now? How often are such procedures being done to convert a biological male to look like a female and vice versa? Well, the, the numbers and the procedures may be hard to come by, but we know that um, approximately half of 1% of adults are seeking transitioning. Uh, and so for some, it'll just be hormonal treatment. Uh, and for some, it'll begin with surgery. So for women who want to be men, typically um, that includes a, a mastectomy, and then they continue on hormonal treatment. Uh, and then for women who want to become men, it's very, very difficult because to create a new phallus, you have to use another body part, usually the forearm, which is made yeah. into a tube. And we'll talk in detail about yeah. that later. And then the other direction? The other direction is a bit easier because it includes a penectomy and then use, use of the penis and the scrotum to create a new vagina. The complication rates are not insignificant and in the female to male. And we'll get into that in detail. So just want the big picture right now. Um, and I think one of your slides talked about an incredible increase in the last 10 years of people identifying. How big has that been? Well, the CDC says it's a 20 to 40% rise. In 40 the last times. Day. 40 times. Yeah, yeah not 40 just percent. times, right. Yeah. Rise. And so, uh, and the, the change that's occurred is traditionally uh, transgender children were boys, prepubescent boys, and it was a very small percentage. Now it's postpubescent girls. Yes. Reaching adolescents who now think that they're actually young men. And um, I think some of the theories include that this is a social contagion. There yes. have been articles published on rapid onset gender dysphoria. Yes. Uh, and parents are bewildered because their little girl never had any signs of dysphoria. But then as they became involved in social uh, circles where other girls were transitioning. Uh, they had some social status with that at school. It became a cool thing to do. And parents have noticed this large spike in um, young women. Now, this surgery has gone by various names. I remember when I was a kid reading about, what was it, uh, something Richards, Renee Richards, or somebody who had undergone transsexual surgery. But now there's been a, a whole, whole an evolution of terms. Right. And I think that's a reflection of the surgical community embracing this as uh, an ideology that should be promoted. And so we've gone from um, sex uh, reassignment. reassignment to gender reaffirmment uh, conforming and now gender affirming surgery as if this was the gender all along and the surgery is just affirming what that gender was. Do you have any thoughts on why okay, you have a discordant psyche or mind or emotions with the body? And the assumption here is that the body is wrong, not the mind or emotions. Correct. And, uh, and that's, the, that, that's the big fallacy here, that uh, we're assuming that um, the, the body's at fault, where in actuality it's the mind that it's, that's at fault. Uh, the idea that you're in the wrong body uh, has to generate an extreme amount of anxiety. Oh, yes. And which is dysphoria. So the indication for the surgery is to correct the problem in the mind because they feel like they're in the wrong body. They want to have their mind in accord with their body. So how would one go out to measure whether or not these surgical interventions help the psychological problem? Well, there are longitudinal studies, and for that, we have to look at the Scandinavian mm -hmm. countries where the surgeries have been performed for the longest period of time. So there's good data from the uh, Karolinska Institute in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, by Dr. Dine, and, and they looked at post-surgical patients who were at least 10 years after their surgery. And in that group, they found that the suicide rates, completed suicide rates, 
were much higher than their cohorts. So for for um, men wanting to become women, it was 19 times uh, the suicide rate was 19 times the general population. But for women wanting to be men, it was 40 times the general population. So it showed that whether you have surgery or not, the surgery is not going to prevent a lifetime of dysphoria. What I'd like to add is that the surgery, in fact, may be very harmful because of the complication rates. So you've added surgical complications to an already the um, debilitated psychological person or someone who's struggling with their identity. So we already know that the treatment itself doesn't help the primary goal, the primary endpoint of a normous psyche. So if this was any other area of medicine, you know, something to treat, um, you know, heart attacks and it increased them by 20 to 40 times, it would be stopped dead in the water. I agree. The complication rates from the surgery alone and the level of evidence of the scientific studies, which are level... Uh, four and five would would, would are would, the lowest. Yes, which would which would indicate that uh, these procedures should not be done. Yes, weak or very weak evidence, if at all. Now, there's something that I learned about in dermatology that I'm sure you learned about plastic surgery. It's called body dysmorphic disorder. Uh, could you explain what that is and why you would avoid doing surgery on someone like that? Well, uh, it's a it's a psychological disorder where one perceives a body part or several body parts or the entire body as being abnormal in some way. It's, uh, and so there's no congruence between, between the psyche and the body. And so we've always been taught to avoid operating on these patients or operate on them very carefully because their perception of what their outcomes are going to be may not be uh, in line with reality. And they may become more confused, more uh, traumatized by the surgery. In, in gender reassignment surgery, this principle has gone out, out the, the window. You know, we now operate on people and not, uh, not accurately uh, assess their mental being before they have all of the surgery, which is irreversible uh, and oftentimes uh, fraught with complications. So it sounds like gender reassignment surgery, whatever you're going to call it, is really a subset of body dysmorphic disorder. It might be, but the uh, the issue here is that the DSM classification has, does not um, does not designate it this way. It used to be called gender identity disorder, yes. and now the designation has changed to gender dysphoria. Right. So, um, what you know, there's a group called WPATH, a World Organization of Transgender Health, and they have guidelines before somebody can undergo one of these mutilating surgeries? What are their basic guidelines before? Well, the basic guidelines is you have to have informed consent, and that varies in countries. In the United States, it's uh, the age of 18. Uh, and we can talk a long time about what informed consent yes. is. Uh, have you really uh, informed the patient that these are irreversible uh, surgeries, that they will be impotent, they will not ever, ever be able to reproduce, uh, that their sexual function will be completely distorted and may never have sexual pleasure. Right. So are those issues really um, uh, involved in an informed consent? Uh, beyond the informed consent, then you need to have um, been on transgender hormones for a year and, and you've had to be living as the uh, opposite gender for at least a year. For at least a year. And yet they don't realize that, you know, I heard somebody talking at the conference last night after you had spoken that, you know, these, so say it's a man identifying as a woman. So if she appears as a woman, how many people out there are going to want to love her physically and emotionally as a woman? Right. And that is the issue that uh, I've been not able to find anything in the literature. But it just seems common sense that if uh, a woman is transition. Uh, a man is transitioning to be a woman. They're looking for a mate to be loved and to love, which is a normal cis man. Right. That's they're looking for that kind of a relationship. Um, and so I haven't been able to find anything in the literature on what the success rate of that is. But I would think it would be very hard to find a cis man, a normal native man that would want to have a strong binding relationship with a transgender woman. Uh, right, because they have become 
a shell in some sense of their former self. They're just an outward shell that has none of the function. So no matter what miracles, so-called, that uh, you can do. And the data is, you know, not very, very clear either on, you know, the sexual function of uh, trans women, the ability to, you know, to have intimate intercourse with vaginal reconstructions. Uh, there's a lot of problems with uh, contracture and... Uh, yeah, let's talk about some of the surgery. So you described a whole host of things that are done in a male to female transec uh, transition, you know, penectomy, clitor making a clitoris. Tell us about all the things that can be involved there. Well, basically, if a man wants to become a woman, you have to get rid of the penis, the scrotum, and create a new vagina. And the new vagina ideally would be 10 centimeters in depth, and there are various ways to do that. Uh, using the penis itself, you destructure the penis and use the outside skin to make a vaginal vault. Uh, that's probably the most successful way. Other ways have not that you would ever do any of these. No, be clear. I, I'm, I'm, I don't do transitioning surgery of any kind. I don't think it's uh, it, because basically it's not going to help patients. It has a high complication rate with very little uh, benefit. So and then the scrotum gets uh, um, the testicles get get removed, and then the scrotum becomes the labia majora. So it's a complicated surgery fraught with uh, complications. And what are the complications? Besides, so, you said stricture. So. Yeah, stenosis of the vagina. Uh, but wound healing ha happens to be a, an, an important complication. Along with the new urethra, uh, there's urethral stenosis and uh, stricture at the urethra. So the urinary component of the uh, urogenital uh, makeup of the human being is the most difficult part to reconstruct. Ah, so even though you're you're shortening the urethra, um, you it, can have complications with strictures of keeping it open right. so that you yeah. can urinate. So that might involve uh, what catheterization? It might uh, it might involve a suprapubic uh, cystostomy for a period of time. So wearing a bag, bag to urinate yeah. into, right? If the complications are severe enough, so it's much harder to become actually a man if you're a woman because now you have to lengthen the urethra and that's where you end up with uh, strictures and fistulas. So first of all, let's uh, finish up the male to female. You talked about that transgender chest surgery. They've done apparently hundreds of studies. You showed us a big number, it was in the thousands. Okay, but in only 3.4% of them, they asked an important question. Right, they asked about, well, and uh, what is your psychological makeup now? You know, the studies out of 890, only, only a small fraction of those were, were adequate enough to evaluate any outcomes. But only 3.4% of the studies actually looked at psychological outcome. And even in those, uh, the data was obtained through questionnaires and self-reporting. So it wasn't that anyone actually interviewed the patient and said, how are you doing? And so the primary indication was for psychiatric well-being. Yes. And but only 3.4% of the studies actually even addressed it at a minimal level. At a poor level. Uh, and in fact, you said that there was a, a huge review of male to female surgery, 1,300 studies. Only 40 had good enough evidence to even review, low evidence. And there was an astounding complication rate to form a, a vagina. Do you remember what that complication rate was? I think you quoted 32%. Yeah, 32% is about the right. And, and and you said that if surgical complication rate is above, what, 20%? I would think 20% is a high complication rate for most surgeries. You start questioning whether to do them unless it was for a life-saving uh, right. reason. So if you have a complication rate of 20% in a purely elective cosmetic operation, you wouldn't I, do I it. just can't believe anybody would do that. Would would you do one out of five facelifts that re, you know that turned into a disaster? Would anybody do that? Certainly, no one today does a cosmetic operation with that with a twenty percent uh, complication rate. And then you said female to male is even harder. Yes, female. This is the very hard one. Female to male, in a in a. One study or one center study, which is important because then the techniques are comparable. Yes. Uh, in Amsterdam, had a 65% uh, 
urethral uh, stricture rate. So, and a 70% revision rate. Oh my goodness. So that's a very, very high complication rate. And then- And that's using that uh, flap from the skin of the forearm. Right, so the part of the uh, urethra is native. The next part of the urethra is made from the labia minora. And then the third part of the urethra, which would be in the phallus, is made from the flap. Wow. And so where the connections occur in the uh, reconstructed urethra is where strictures can occur, and they do occur despite placing Foley catheters there for weeks and trying to stent open uh, the uh, co-optation. It just doesn't no, work. it just doesn't work. And as I said, these people are a shell of what a male or female is. Uh, and this high of a complication rate, you're right, I wonder, are these people being informed about these problems? I, I just don't see how anybody's providing that kind of data to them. I think there's an ideology that this is good for patients, that they're going to be happier. And who doesn't want to help a patient who's unhappy? Right. Right. What physician doesn't want to offer something? But we're offering a very false hope, a hope that, you know, if you just go on and do these surgeries, life will be fine. You'll be who you should be. And it just isn't true. And they're stopping these or putting the brakes on them in other countries, aren't they? That's right. So if you look now uh, at Sweden, um, uh, Sweden, uh, Finland, France, Finland. Uh, France even, and oh. Norway, they are, their national health systems are starting to look at the data and obviously saying, is this where we want to reappropriate our resources? Are we helping our citizens by doing these surgeries? So why are we racing behind them in the United States? Well, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think um, the powers that be um, aren't looking at the data or don't want to see the data that's reported. And Unfortunately, some of the data that's reported uh, reaches a conclusion that's contrary to the data. data yes. Yes. And that's, that's become, for me, I think, a real eye-opener, something I thought I'd never see in medicine, that you would present data that shows A and then conclude that the data says B, and then, patient, and then other organizations are calling you on it. Are there any sources that listeners can go to if they want more information on what we talked about? You know, I think the uh, a very good source for the layperson uh, or, or professionals as well is the uh, Society for Gender Evidence Medicine. It's, it's SGEMs, and um, you can easily find it on the website. They have a lot of literature for the physician, but they also have basic content for um, just the, lay, the average layperson. Al, parting thoughts for our listeners. Well, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm just saddened by the fact that I think we're, we're living a lie in, in, this, uh, in this part of medicine, that we have data that shows one thing, and yet we insist on uh, invoking our own uh, prejudice, certainly in, in medicine and uh, in the United States. Gender identity is... is uh, the gospel. Right now it is the emperor's new clothes. And anyone who doesn't embrace it or anyone that questions it has to be sanctioned or perhaps their privileges taken away. And that's the fear that I have for physicians of faith moving forward. That if they don't participate in these things, then maybe they shouldn't have a, a license to practice medicine. But there are many courageous ones out there like you who are doing the right thing. And Hopefully, good will continue to triumph over evil. Al, thanks for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Thank you very much, Tom. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question of the day. Tom? Yes, the urethra in women is just over an inch and a half long, carrying urine from the bladder to the outside world. But in a man, that four centimeters length is really 18 to 20 centimeters, seven to eight inches which means it's five and a half to six and a half inches longer in a man than a woman. And that's what those surgeons, Dr. Oliva talked about, are trying to keep open in a woman who's trying to look like a man. That's a lot of urethra to pull out of thin air or the forearm in yes, this case, yes. which is kind of morbid. But, you know, I think it a is. lot of people will recognize that. You know, I get to talk to folks about this in family medicine a lot as to why ladies get more UTIs than men generally. Because urethra is shorter and it's easier for the bacteria to get into the bladder and cause trouble there. Exactly. And once it's in the bladder, it's kind of a closed system and it can grow without 
uh, antibiotics being introduced. And once they are, then the infection goes away. So, Andrew, what are your top three from hearing these interviews? Man, it was great. Uh, kind of to split it up between the two interviews. You know, number one, I would say testosterone's not the whole story. Yeah. Uh, apart from what you would you'd hear about and read, the epigenetic sexual differences, especially uh, the studies they talked about in kids before they go through puberty. Yeah. That has to be explored. I mean, I've got daughters. I know you do too. Women's sports, I think, is the the example. But obviously, there's so many other facets of life where this is really important to, to get right, not only for, for my daughters, but for the patients who are who are suffering with this, with gender dysphoria. So that'd be number one. I'd say number two, uh, in regard to the surgical stuff, is the suicide rates. You can't, oh my goodness. You can't hide from that. People should be aware of it. The suicide rates, they always talk about it as maybe because these folks are not made to feel comfortable or they're discriminated against. But even the cure, the surgical cure, the suicide rates go way up, something 20 to 40 times higher even after surgery. Yes. So if the surgery was supposed to fix that, it doesn't. It makes it worse. So that and, would be And what two. other medical treatment would we continue in the face of that kind of data? Yeah, no, you really have to. You guys mentioned the emperor's new clothes. I mean, that's the, the perfect analogy. And these stories are there for a reason because history repeats itself. And this is the newest example of that. And number three. Number three, I'd say if we want to be serious, I'm talking to all my my scientific friends who think this might be a good idea. Let's follow the science. You know, Dr. Oliva brought up a great point that the indication for these surgeries is a psychiatric indication, not a physical indication. But the, the outcomes of these surgeries, only 3% of them looked at psychiatric outcomes. So we're saying we're doing this surgery because of the dysphoria, mm -hmm. just, you know, 3% we actually look to see if this foria gets better. Uh, is it because we're doing a bad job or maybe people don't want to know or maybe they do know and they're not studying it because it doesn't support the cause. So let's follow the science. That's what I'm all for. Amen, Andrew. Great way. I'm glad you got that out of it, not having been there because I was similarly, um, yeah, I, I don't know, affected by them. They, they were pretty dramatic. So that brings us to the end of yet another episode, and we thank you for being with us. You can find this and all old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on Episode Archive at the top where you can search over 290 episodes by topic or guest. And now we even offer a video version of our podcast. Just click on the YouTube link in the top of our homepage at drdoctor.org. And if you have a question or an idea for an episode topic, click where it says Submit a Question. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.